Our chronological look at the career of Carol Kane continues on Praising Kane with the Catherine Benet fantasy drama The Games of Countess Dollingen from 1981. It's Praising Kane. I'm your esteemed host and guide, Liam O'Donnell, and with me is Un Invitee, Doug Tilly. <laughs> Doug, I know I mispronounced that. <laughs> uh, Doug, how's your life right now, Mr. Okay. French Major? Liam, I, you know, I'm blessed to live in a country that is bilingual, mm-hmm. uh, even though I only speak very, very little French and uh, haven't actually studied it since I was in elementary school. But, sure. you know, I, pronunciation is sort of built into being Canadian. And the fact that we're covering a French movie on this episode of Praising Kane, right, yeah. it, even it's France French, not Quebec French, but the pronunciation is a big part of it. Uh, and hearing you fucking demolish <laughs> invitee, <laughs> not that I know so much about it either. I'm sure I'll fuck up a bunch of stuff too. Sure, but sure. it's it's it is amusing to me, Liam. Uh, this is a very French movie, and it's a very French discussion we're going to have about it. I think, Doug, I've done five years of Spanish, three in high school, yes. two in college. Mm. I've done. One year of Greek and one year of Hebrew, and uh, I have trouble with anything that isn't English. Like I've spent time in books about languages, and I feel that much more stupid and American because of it. Because I just can't, I can't find my way past English. And I some pronunciation I can get down, especially in Spanish, but French is French pronunciation escapes me unless I hear someone say it first. Where I grew up in Newfoundland. It felt like you went to one of two directions, taking French in elementary school. It either made you really interested in it and you would study it the rest of your life and probably become bilingual, or you would be you would despise it so much because it was so difficult that you would do anything to never have to learn that again, which is the, the route that I took. But then in university, because I was an English lit major, uh, I couldn't graduate unless I got a certain number of credits in a second language. So I decided to take Spanish. And let's just say that I limped to the finish line for my degree. I did fine <laughs> in all my courses except for the second language. I was garbage at it. But I did learn that the double L makes a Y sound. So, you know, me llama oh, S, yeah. Doug. Yeah. My, uh, you know, recently on my other show, Cinepunks, we covered the Claire Denis film Beau Travail, a movie that I was aware of because um, – on Linoleum Knife, Dave White talks about it a lot as one of his favorite Claire Denis films. Um, and I attempted to then find this film, which is available on the Criterion channel. And uh, I didn't know how to spell it, Doug, because I don't know how you pronounce things in French. And so I was looking for a much different spelling than Biao Travail, oh which, is God, what I, <laughs> which is what I saw in front of me. And it took me a while to go... Oh, Botrava. Okay, yes. No, that makes sense. Right. I'm an idiot. It's me. I'm the one. It's it's my fault. So the movie we're discussing today, Doug, is called The Games of Countess Dollinger. And as you said, it's a French film. Uh, and it's not just a French film. It's a French film that is, let's call, narratively indirect. Um, I don't, I don't know that I would, uh, that I would describe it as 
um, abstract. I think that's a bridge too far. I don't think it's quite that. Uh, I, I, I don't think I would even call it avant-garde. I think that maybe is is asking too much. But it's certainly not, in, a, in our current world of popcorn cinema, I think this would be considered a artsy French film, a French art film, a perhaps hoity-toity or highfalutin film. Now, I got to be honest about something, Doug. The the criticisms or the the let's say derogatory terms I'm using right now. Mm-hmm. Um, previously, these are terms I have never used because I don't often know what people mean. You sure. know, and and I I've seen um, I've seen late period Godard, and I still don't know what people mean by these terms because often the movies they're describing are either interesting or they're not and so i'm more interested in that description but as i was watching this film i realized that uh i had complicated feelings about it and i wasn't sure how i felt about it and i suddenly thought maybe this is the sort of film people mean when they get on their uh uh you know every man horse and start declaring that anything (laughs) more complicated than transformers is just for elitist uh uh, coastal douchebags of which i'm apparently one uh though i live in chicago now uh so I, i wanted to ask you a question um what was the last film you saw that was maybe challenging or aesthetically minded or if we're going to be really harsh up its own ass enough that you didn't enjoy it for those reasons because uh outside of possibly our film today which i'm still a little agnostic about and we'll get into it in a little bit i can't remember the last time i saw a film and thought this is just some artsy bullshit i can't really think of one that fully fits into that i mean i i think this actually opens up a pretty interesting conversation which is sure there are some people who think that that say movies in the '40s and '50s are high and flute and just simply because of their age, right? There's there's a whole category right. of people. Yeah, who, okay. It's like, oh, you think Vertigo or Citizen Kane is the greatest movie of all time? Well, it's it's like a just boring, arty nonsense. And like those are the most crowd pleasing <laughs> fucking. Yeah, you know, I mean, Citizen Kane is hilarious and it has all these great. I mean, it has tons of special effects in it. Oh, I, and, okay, but I but I do think so. That's those. That's a good comparison though. In that. Um, Citizen Kane does make some decisions, though, for aesthetic reasons that maybe don't serve the narrative all the time, though I would argue they do. I could see why someone might not see how it does. Whereas I guess Vertigo, it's someone showing off, certainly, when they're... I mean, this yeah, is Orson Welles showing off is just all sorts Vertigo. of Vertigo. It's just like yeah. a... You know what I mean? Like, meticulous. Yeah, it's meticulous, sure, but it's not... It's still entertainment. I guess, yeah. I, I, I guess that's the question, right? Like, can a film avoid entertainment but still be good? So I watched a movie by Peter Greenaway a couple of months ago called The Belly of an Architect, starring Brian Denny. Oh, Denny, yeah, I've never Brian seen it, but I, I want to see it, yeah. And I, I enjoyed it. I did, but it does necessitate, and I think this is where I really want to go with this conversation. Okay. It necess- necessitates to really appreciate it on a deep level, a knowledge or an interest in architecture and the history uh... of architecture that I don't have. So... There, you can still, you know, appreciate it. You can appreciate the story that's being told, but it is meant to be, um, it is designed, <laughs> just like the architecture on display, for someone who has more knowledge than I do about the subject matter. So sure. you always feel when you're watching it that you're not completely grasping it on the level that you should. Now that's fine. That happens to me all the time. I'm never going to get everything or illusions. I mean, we have a podcast devoted to Jodorowsky where. I mean, that's part of the deal, right? His literary illusions are things that we couldn't possibly know anything about. They're so far outside of our experience. But that movie, I felt while I was watching it, I was like, I don't, 
I wish I understood this more. And then you can go into it, right? You can, you can go do tons of research. But I mean, I can't become an architect, right? I can't, I can't. It's it, And honestly, architecture is not something that interests me directly so much yeah, that yeah. I'm willing to spend a lot of time on it. But I'm glad that we're talking about this because I think that does play directly into our film today, which we'll get into when we start talking about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's true. I think for me, um, I think Yodorowsky is a great example because what overcomes that, I think, for me and then forces me to think more about what I'm seeing is the sense of spectacle. You know, like, no, Yodorowsky film is understated. Uh, but there might be films that require a certain amount of interpolation uh, as well as interpretation that maybe ask too much. Uh, th- I don't know that this is a great example, but it's one that I think of sometimes um, when I saw uh, the first time I saw The Tree of Life, sure. um, which I which I actually do enjoy a good deal. But the I saw it with some friends, and one of those friends is very experienced in both classical music and specifically church related classical music like sure. ch- church music and they left with a huge sense that um the soundtrack was very important to what was going on and that mm. there was a lot of interpretive work going on and they had a whole take on the film that involved church history and music and all this stuff and they got into it like they really got into it and it was so intense Doug that I literally halfway through and I you know I'm someone who went to school for this sort of thing and I was like okay you fucking lost me I don't even know and it it for a little bit made me think maybe I didn't like this movie (laughs) just because like they had such a complicated relationship (laughs) with this movie and it's such a intricate interpretation I'm like I'm not going to get another degree just so I get this fucking Terrence Malick movie (laughs) Like, I remember I remember reading an interview with Sean Penn talking about his experience making The Tree of Life. And, you know, I love that movie, too. Uh, I, there's just so much about it that's so beautiful and brilliant. And then, you know, he was like, I didn't really know what was going on. We were just walking in the desert, right? We didn't really know. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, well, look at this brilliant performance. He's just confused, right? <laughs> but, I mean, uh-huh. it's... I mean, I, I certainly the post-Tree uh, of Life movies that Terrence Malick has made, I've certainly felt that way. That, that that sometimes they were a little masturbatory or a lot masturbatory and that I didn't feel like I was I didn't feel like I was grasping it enough that I was able to appreciate it on an appropriate level and it just makes me feel stupid that's I think that's really what it comes down to when I'm watching a movie and I feel like I'm not smart enough to get it to the point where I can appreciate it it makes me feel like I'm just not smart generally and that's just an unpleasant feeling but sure. sometimes if I trust the filmmaker it doesn't bother me whatsoever but if I haven't right. developed that trust yet, then sometimes I find it very, very frustrating, and I leave with kind of a, a bitter taste in my mouth. Well, we're going to find out how we each felt about this piece of art today. I, I get the feeling we had slightly different experiences with it. Maybe but, extremely different experiences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was being <laughs> facetious. But, but we'll see. Maybe, maybe, maybe there'll be some common ground, and, and, and maybe you'll even be able to open up my mind to what I what I was missing. Uh, I did want to mention, coming up uh, after this, we have The Greatest Man in the World from 1981. I'm, I'm praising Kane. These are the upcoming films. Yeah, upcoming covering. films we're covering on Praising Kane. My bad. Uh, so those include The Greatest Man in the World from 1981, Strong Medicine from 1981, and uh, Panda Pandemonium from 1982. Uh, fun fact: I have Pandemonium, I mm-hmm. believe, on Blu-ray. So that's yeah. You fun. mentioned that on our most recent episode. Oh, so, sorry yeah. about that. I'm sorry. It's to okay. Myself. Look, um, you can't expect. Hey, look, we we have so few listeners for our podcast, Liam, that you need to repeat these things just to make sure people get them. But yeah, Pandemonium, the horror comedy. I've never seen it, but I'm really looking forward to checking it out. Funny enough, I haven't either. I just got it as part of a package deal. But uh, we're still in these 
uh, projects that I feel like people don't really know. So I hope what few listeners we have are sticking it out with us till we get to something they're familiar with. But I got to be honest, Doug, uh, despite my frustrations with today's movie, I'm still excited to keep going through some of these movies I'm completely unfamiliar with. I probably would never have seen this movie otherwise. Never, ever, ever, ever. And and honestly, it, it... I keep going back to those interviews that we've talked about with Carol Kane, where she, you know, the, the interviewer is like, you're a comedic actress. You, you know, you're, you're, you're known for your comedy. And then we're going to, you know, we went from La Sabina, where she's speaking Spanish for a big chunk of it, to this film where she's speaking French almost exclusively in the film and actually speaking it. And these are all about like both very dramatic, very serious art movies. And it's just like she had it, it's not necessarily she had pretensions to do more. But, geez, I mean, she's so much more than just, you know, the the. Funny actress from Taxi, which we already knew going into this, but I've really developed a real appreciation for her over the last few episodes. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, I mean, it's it's complicated, right? Because even though I don't like the product, I think I think I have some <laughs> thoughts about her performance, which I think is is very good. Okay, we're gonna take a break. We're gonna come back. We're <laughs> gonna finally unveil how we feel about the games of Countess Dollingen from 1981. We'll be right back. In Paris, a young woman, Louise, visits her old friend, Nina, in a psychiatric clinic, who tells her that she's just finished a novel about a girl who committed suicide. That's not what she says. She begins to read, and the events of the novel are bizarrely... Bizarrely? She begins to read, and the events of the novel are bizarrely intertwined with the life of Louise herself. That's not really true. Who is experiencing a severe depression. Sure. The reality in her mind changes places with imagination, and it is already difficult to understand what exactly is happening and what is invented. That's fair, but I think that's just the movie and not a plot device. Was the thief who died in a trap set up by Louise's husband the same person because of whom the girl jumped out of the window? And what will happen to herself when the book ends? None of this makes any sense. That is not the plot of this movie, no. even though that's what it is on Letterboxd. Of, of uh, 1980 ones the games of countess dollingen or le jeu de la comtesse dollingen de Graz. i made it to spanish at the end i, I can't yeah, help it's myself all right. it's fine <laughs> uh directed by uh catherine benet this was her only feature-length narrative film though she wrote and edited it appeared in the 1971 surreal thriller le printemps 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 oh yeah yeah, yeah. um uh, importantly, she was the uh, life <laughs> companion, which is a very French way to put that. Uh, the partner, let's say, of uh, Georges Perec, uh, who born is... George Perec, so you could probably just go by that. Oh, is that right? I don't. Well, it says know. there. On the... I, you're just reading what I wrote, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was a French novelist. He was a filmmaker, documentalist, which is not the right term, and essayist. <laughs> 
<laughs> he was a member of the Willipol group. His father died as a, a oh. soldier early in the Second World War. Oh, we didn't know all that. Anyways. No, we certainly uh, didn't. Writer Catherine Bidet, based on the novel Sombre Printemps by uh, Unica Zern. Really also, putting you through the ringer here in terms of pronunciation. It's fine. I'll live. Uh, uh, Brand Stoper also gets a credit because of the film's reference to uh, his short story, Dracula's Guest. I I'll be honest, the I end don't of the remember... Most- I don't remember anything about that in the movie. Okay, uh, I'm going to explain all of this to you, Liam. On okay. the end of the most recent episode of Praising Kane, I set you up to watch this movie, right? And uh-huh. I'm like, based on a Bram Stoker story, it should be pretty spooky. And I thought it was going to be like this gothic movie set in the no. late 1800s. Nope. No. <laughs> it takes place in modern day. <laughs> but no, Dracula's Guest absolutely not only gets um, cited in the film, but actually is shown like the, a big plot part of that short story is shown in the movie, which I'm sure you've forgotten entirely. Oh, yes, yes, yes. No, I do remember now. Okay, right. okay, okay. Sure, sure, sure. That's I didn't make the connection until you just said that. Okay, sure. Well, You have to know what goes on in Dracula's Guest to know it. I did not, so I had to look it up afterwards. Right. Dracula's well, Guest, by the way, for those who don't know, was a, a, a short story written by Bram Stoker that takes place basically in the world of Dracula, and most people posit or, or uh, it's suggested that it was actually the first chapter of Dracula that was then excised from the final version. That makes sense. Well, look, regardless of what I think of this movie, which we'll get into in a sec, this film was entered into the main competition at the 30th edition, 38th edition of the Venice Film Festival, which means somebody believed in it. <laughs> I think, Doug, you're one of those people. What did you think <laughs> of the games of Countess Dollingen? I did think that it was pretty fucking amazing, actually. I really enjoyed it. And uh, though I don't feel like necessarily, as we were just talking about, that I grasped all of it, I will say that my appreciation for it grew immensely by doing a little research after the fact. And that is something that I talked about just before the break, right? I I shouldn't feel like I should have to do that necessarily, but this is a movie that is making literary illusions and also is straight up meant to be an adaptation of both that that book that you mentioned, the novel Sombre Pouton by Una Cazern, but also that novel is a autobiographical novel. So it's also about the life of Una Kazern, and then it's also, you know, in some way uh, trying to uh, to uh, work these kind of gothic elements into it. There is one scene which takes place, which is really just an adaptation of a scene from Dracula's Guest, where there's like a, a spooky cemetery, and you see um, a crypt open, and a woman singing, and a horseman just go off into the night. Very spooky. Really as close to horror as this ever gets. This is not a horror film in any way. This is more... It's not even... I mean, it really is just a straight-up drama. There's nothing thrilling about it necessarily, unless you count the trapping of the uh, thief. This is a movie that has basically several narrative threads that are ongoing simultaneously. One of those is basically an adaptation of this Una Cazern book, which is autobiographical, being told by a woman in a psychiatric hospital who likely is meant to represent Unica herself, who committed suicide and, and was in psychiatric hospitals for most of her life. And... When you understand that this coming-of-age sexuality part of this is reflective of her experience and is trying to tell that story and then is also meant to to be played against what's going on with the other two main characters of the film, the, the kind of main couple at its core, one played by Cal Kane and the other by Michael Lonsdale, even though we don't even see his face until one of the final scenes of the entire film. Michael Lonsdale, you probably recognize from The Day of the Jackal or Moonraker. Um, and, you know, a great actor just passed away, I think, uh, last year or the year before. 
And then these narrative strains, they I don't necessarily see how they all fit together outside of this kind of frustration with masculinity, this idea of burgeoning sexuality and masochism that's played into it. But it's such a brave movie in terms of what it's attempting to show on screen to the point where, hey, I felt super uncomfortable watching this at, some, at in certain points. There is a, an attempted rape scene. There's a lot of very uncomfortable sexuality. But I do think it's incredibly important that this is a film directed by a woman, written by a woman, adapted by, uh, by a work uh, by a woman that is speaking from her own personal experience. The fact that it's playing into this idea of mental illness and suicide. And I really was intrigued the entire time. And when I felt like I was drifting from it, maybe at the midway point, the final half hour in particular really drew me in. The part with the husband trying to trap the thief and, and him dying in his clutches and the way that Carol Kane responds to it. And her performance, which is, as we've seen in a lot of recent films, very restrained right up until the point that it's not. I really do think that this is a pretty amazing movie. Very hard to find. I'm not exactly sure why it's so hard to find. It's actually, there's a copy on archive.org at the moment that you can check out. Uh, but I was glad that we were <laughs> able to watch a movie that was subtitled, that we could understand what was going on for the most part, Liam. I get the feeling that you didn't feel the same as me. No, I did not, Doug. Um, <laughs> uh, I guess, so I guess the, the primary issue here is that I was not, um, I never felt drawn in by what I was watching. I never felt like I I um, was curious in a sense. You know what I mean? Like that um, there's a lot here that is challenging, but I didn't um, ever come to an appreciation of the ways I was being challenged and, and understanding where it was getting me. Mm. Um, I think it would have helped if I understood ahead of time that the main story in the story is the adaptation. Right. I did not. So then I felt like I was trying to understand how what really is the point in some senses of the movie is serving the larger wraparound story, which is kind of maybe not the point of the movie. You know what I mean? So I was thinking like, I don't quite understand how the, you know, the, man whose face we don't see till the end of the movie sure um trying to protect his rich ass house where he keeps his angel dolls or whatever right. the fuck they were mm -hmm. what that has to do with the naked tween trying to get off on the banister right like I, I was like i don't quite see why these things are in both of this movie and for me um i didn't think any of the the uh the young girl eroticism was particularly offensive. In fact, I kind of appreciate the idea of depicting um, the sexuality of a young of a young woman as not that different than the sexuality of a young man because I don't think that happens a lot. You know, like a right. lot of times, you know, we we accept that a thirteen year old boy is probably jerking off every five minutes, but girls are supposed to be just like horrified by that sort of thing. And I'm like, well, yeah, everything that. everything involving the bather in this, you know, if if the if the genders were reversed, it would be very reflective of those kind of coming of age movies oh, that are very very one, common, right? One hundred percent. And I, but I do think that there's a sense in which there's a deeper. I mean, obviously, some of that's going on when her brother tries to sexually assault her and it's right. really upsetting um but there's also just a deeper something going on that's easily related to her absent father and how she feels about her own body and stuff and um 
all of that, I it just I don't I just personally didn't feel like the movie really got there for me to understand or feel engaged by it. And then I'm still thinking about this dude who's just really worried about some guy eating his food and taking his little angel guys. And, and that, <laughs> that for me, and you know, this is one of the questions I wanted to ask you the, like, let's call them the a and the B story, the a story being the Carol Kane story and the B story being this, the novel she's reading, which is really what the movie is adapting is this, is this novel. I don't even think she's even reading it necessarily, but yeah, maybe right? I mean, at the very it's, least it's the story of her sister who was in the psychiatric hospital. Right, 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 right. So in theory, that's what it is. I thought it was presented that way, but you're right. Maybe it's not. But regardless, the A and the B story. The A story, I started to connect with somewhat in the idea that, like, there's this weird sort of um, class aspect to it, right? This guy, he's got his secluded home. Everything about his life is about seclusion. Sure. He has his own space in the woods. No one can fucking get there. He just has cold chicken and angel statues there yeah he's and, even hidden from the movie right i mean you don't see yeah, him you don't see we his don't face. see him he's like he's too good for us to even see his eyes yeah and then this like random dude has just come in and 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 there's a scene where he has the opportunity to assault and possibly kill this person and he chooses not to and instead comes up with this other plan which is like Far more cruel, right? Much it's more like, cruel. It's a passive. All of that for me, and maybe this is just me sort of reading into it, felt like it had cla- like a class distinction aspect to it. Like a, Absolutely. Like a poor, you know. And I didn't feel any of that in the central story. So that I, you know, I wanted to ask you about that. Like, is that just an aspect of story A that is unrelated to story B? Is there, is that more of an overarching theme that I'm missing? Like, you know, you're, you're a real uh, dyed in the wool lefty. What's, what's the underlying left message of this movie? (laughs) Oh, I think that it has to do with the connection between the emotional distancing that comes from great wealth and mental illness. Okay. Right. Because, okay. Yeah. I could see that. Because her father was always away on safari. That was the idea, even though they didn't say it in, in much detail, right? And her mother had all these uh, – she was like a very – she was like a raconteur, and she had money lovers, and her family was very, very distant from her. There was even almost a weird kind of incestual part of it that – I think the idea is like the boredom of wealth leads you to these – um, um, almost obscene actions. I mean, I don't know if that necessarily reflects reality, but to some extent it does, right? And I think that that part of the suggestion is that her mental illness is tied into that. The fact that she has this extreme wealth and she lives in this, you know, the, her experimenting with sexuality involving sharp objects being, you know, put up, up against her genitals and riding down the banister. She's alone all the time. She's been left in this massive empty mansion. and And that is what kind of, um, I think there's a parallel there between the house that this gentleman has. Also, the fact that I believe, I might be wrong on this, that the swimmer that she ends up becoming fascinated with is played by the same actor who plays the thief who tries to break into the gentleman's house. Sure, right. Uh, th- all the parallels don't necessarily like click for me, just like with you, right? I don't necessarily see how all the pieces fit, but certainly when he is telling the story of how he basically tortured this guy to death by leaving him unable to eat or drink until he just right. died... He tells it, and the immediate response from his very well-to-do dinner party is one of shock, and then they just relax and move on, and they're like, oh, of course you did that. What else could you do? And it's just like... Oh, yeah, that scene is the most engaging for me of the whole movie, and I felt 
the rage or right. possible insanity that that Carol Kane's character ends up feeling. Yeah, well, that's it, it, right? Like, it's her breaking are point. These is... fucking monsters. Yeah, 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 exactly, right? And you know, just the 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 idea that yeah, apparently she had that at that point read the book by her sister and her, her, and and noticed the parallel how in the book the character commits suicide and then her sister did the same thing. Which, by the way, the Una Kazern she committed suicide in the same way as the character in her book did. Wow. Uh, so that, okay. that parallel is 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 intentional in the film as well. But again, you wouldn't know that unless you like did the research afterwards. And I don't think there should be an expectation of it. But like but, I said, but is there a group of people? I here's the thing, Doug. This happens all the time when people take things like Shakespeare or, um, you know, other sort of literary. Like, is there a group of people, the audience for this movie, for whom Unica Zern is so essential? Like, I'm looking through the letterbox reviews. There are people who are like, I can't be objective about this movie because I reread Unica Zern's book. Right, of course. Every year. I didn't. I don't even know who this person is. So maybe sure. if I was more familiar with the literary tradition, which is my ignorance, then it takes it off the filmmaker to feel like they need to be direct and puts it on me. Like, well, I should fucking know because everybody else knows. Why don't I? But like that—that's exactly what I was getting at with our opening segment, right? Right. It's like right, right. how why, do I have the freedom to be ignorant and still appreciate and enjoy this movie, right? And it and should I? Right? How much should I expect to be spoon-fed? Should there be a part at the beginning where it introduces who this woman is and her work and why there are parallels between her real life and the story? How important is that? Look, the fact is when this movie came out in 1981, if you didn't know who she was, if you didn't know, know who Una Kazern was, how would you find out? How would I right. find out? Right. I mean, exactly. I, mean I, I was one yeah. years old, but like, how would I find out even as a teenager? I didn't have the internet to search it up. Sure. Uh, it, it, it's, there is an expectation of knowledge, I think, that's built into this film. That will would give you a deeper appreciation, but what you are showing, I think, in your response to it is, if you don't have that knowledge, then this movie seems like a collection of incidents. Sometimes they're engaging, other times they're just confusing, and that you, right. it's hard to see how they would fit together otherwise. Well, here's the thing, Doug. I've read from from many people that this film is a curious horatilization of the phallic, <laughs> a strata of language. Declenched from standard representational acclamations. I feel like you might have read this last episode, but the point is, is like, <laughs> is there is there a sense in which and, I and hate this, the person who wrote that, by the way. Yeah, and, and what's funny is they have all these complicated language to basically say you'd think a film that is a literary adaptation would be more related to the book. Is right. honestly what they're saying. Uh, I, trust me, if you read through this thing, they have other things going on related to interpretations of whatever but their right. main critique of the movie is eh, it's kind of dark and slow and puzzling and it doesn't really relate to the book as much as you think it would cool man thanks for making that so complicated uh but uh, i i do want to say like to what extent is the issue for me here uh not just one of interpretation but one of ideology in the sense that there's something being accomplished in zern's work that I am unfamiliar with. So I'm watching this thing thinking like I'm not as engaged by this tween's sexual awakening slash mental breakdown as I want to be. And I'm more curious about what's happening with our uh, 
uh, rich bastard who is gearing up towards a murder, which, by the way, I didn't necessarily see coming. Like, yeah. I knew something was going to happen there that was probably going to be distasteful. But the coldness, it's so cold. And I think, um, thinking about it the way that you've just encouraged me, Doug, I do think maybe the film does accomplish more as a reflection of the pathology of wealth, especially in a society like French society. Not that we don't have the same pathology here, but uh, in the U.S., about half the wealth in this country is held by the sort of, like, yeehaw yokels that you couldn't really put in a film like this. You know what I mean? Like, they'd be too busy, like, driving around in giant trucks and shooting off guns. You know what I mean? Like, this, there's something about this that relates this uh, uh, kind of pathology also to a sense of like propriety and class, which is present in the U.S., but is geographically specific. So like the sort of coldness that might break your mind in the United States is dependent on where you are in the country. You sure. know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah um, of course. And, and so like uh, the, the version of this set in Houston would be very different, <laughs> though it might have some of the same pathologies within, you know? Uh, so all that to say... Um, I wonder to what extent I didn't go into this with the sort of ideological lens I needed. And instead I was just sort of absorbing the imagery, feeling not always fully engaged by it and not thinking about the coherence underneath as maybe this is like a socialist project and, and one that functions for me at a almost like situationist level, right? It's more elicitory mm-hmm. than it is direct. It's not a message movie, but it very much depicts a sort of uh, a, a continuity that I didn't realize was there. I mean, I think the class is a huge part of it, but I don't think it's necessarily the central. No, not at all. It, not at right? all. Right. I mean, the, the fact that this is about a young woman with mental illness and that, Una Kazern, and again, we might even be pronouncing her name wrong, and I really apologize for people who are more familiar with her work than, than I am. I don't mean sure. to be speaking with any sort of, of certainty, but that her work was about her own life and her own mental illness and how how both sad it would be to read all of these horrible things that she went through within her life and yeah. also knowing that it has this sad end, but also how incredible it is for someone to be aware of their own mental illness and be able to document it like that and maybe even document whether it be a genetic factor or whether it be incidents in her life that kind of promoted that. I mean, I think that's really interesting. The other thing I really wanted to mention, by the way, is this movie is very much about fetishization, right? Like the, yes, the, the very gentleman, much so. he buys these statues. And when he has this like wooden statuette of an angel, there's a scene where he's just like rubbing his hands over it slowly. Right. The idea I think of, of putting all of this meaning or, um, yeah, putting basically attributing all this meaning to these objects and then having someone slowly come into your life and take yeah. them away one by one. That yeah. for him, like the the only proper uh, way to treat a person like that is to not only kill them, but to make them suffer horribly for it. And then, of course, you see the fetishization in the girl's story where she takes like the hair and the picture where she, where she, she decides that the only way that she can keep it safe is to eat it. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, just these, the way that objects are treated, I think are very interesting as well. Well, I think, well, that's why to me, the movie feels ideological that is related to class in the sense that the movie's making a direct connection. Now that I'm thinking about it more between this man and what we see going on with the girl and the swimmer guy, you know yeah. what I mean? Like and 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 for this man, the the issue is you were talking about the fetishization, right? It's the sense of exposure. This play I mean, 
it's hard to explain to y'all that like w- the place that's being violated is like this is it might as well be a sex dungeon it is so fetishized you know what i mean like yeah. it's his secret place it's got in the four woods. locks on the front door i mean and it's like, unbelievable it's a fortress and when i when i saw the the titles i you know, the way he treats the the uh, carol king character you'd think this was his mistress right but that's his wife like yep. and so like can you imagine doug having a secret house in the woods where you go to rub your little angel statues that your wife doesn't even isn't welcome at and then to have something that level you've used your wealth to create whatever the fuck this is i don't know if it's sexual i don't know if it's psychological it doesn't matter like it doesn't matter if this has to do with his belief in in god or if he jerks off in that room the right. function is the same this is some release for his deepest whatevers right Mm -hmm. and then some dude just wanders in there and eats an apple and touches all the stuff he is violated he feels and 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 the ways in which everyone around the table at the dinner later is completely comfortable with enabling that they're enabling every they come up with excuses to enable it right it's at first horrified and then like oh but what else could you do you live out in the middle of nowhere you couldn't call the police i mean of course this is what you had to do I feel like, and granted, I have the slightest, you know, there's that nebulous place, Doug, where philosophy and psychology sort of merge together to make one sort of discourse. So, like, I'm thinking of my friends who are into, like, Jacques Lacan and stuff like that, and Mm -hmm. I've done such a slight reading in that area. I don't know much about it. I couldn't say anything insightful. But watching this, I wasn't thinking anything about that. I was more just trying to honestly suss out my feelings to some extent. And I'll, I'll get your take on this in a sec, on what I was seeing, right, on on how I felt about what I was seeing. If I had been thinking about this, I would have said in my mind, you know, this is kind of a right material for anyone who likes that sort of thing, the the Jacques Lacan sort of take on like, or even I guess from there, like a Zizek take on psychology, uh, the psychological functioning of people in a social sense. I think this movie actually is dealing with that in a very artistic way, the more I think about it. But my brain just wasn't there. My brain was thinking, and, and I wanted to know what you thought about this, uh, how I felt about the depictions of this young woman. And, and I was ignorant of the fact that this was someone telling their own story. Now, I did know it was directed by a woman, so I was a little bit more like, okay, sure. some decisions are being made here that whatever. But like, I was thinking, like, I don't know how I feel about all this like tween uh, uh, letting the dog lick her and stuff. Yeah. Like, is this not again? It's not about being offended. It's about is this is there an exploitative angle to this? Absolutely. Or not? And yeah. I and I wasn't sure. And I felt like maybe that distracted me from the resonances between the two stories. So that when the movie was over, I thought, well, those were two kind of upsetting stories, and I don't know <laughs> how they connect at all. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. No. Very much so. Sometimes I think that you know both of us know a lot of critics right sure writers and and sometimes i feel like you can't really review a movie until you at least see it twice because the first time yeah that's possible yeah but that's not realistic for critics they can't who who the fuck has time to watch and and some movies are not deserving of watching twice as well but something like this this is a movie that i think to watch it a second time where you don't have to have that weight of oh am i understanding what's happening oh what's you know where you know the plot where you know the actions that are going to happen and then you can more appreciate it on a thematic level maybe people who are smarter than me it all comes together at once on the first viewing so you don't necessarily need that but when when you're in unknown territory with an unfamiliar director with unfamiliar 
you know, actions, an adaptation of work that you're not familiar with. There is like this concern. It's like, am I getting this? And especially because for both of us, we knew we had to talk about it afterwards. So it's like, I, I want to make sure that I don't, I, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not knocking you for not going out and doing a bunch of research on this after the fact. It's whether you should have to do that research in order to appreciate and understand it. And the fact is, I was feeling the same way. I was watching this coming of age story of this girl. I'm like, like this is a young actress. She's being asked to do some fucking wild shit in this. And if this, and we're also used to the American way of these coming of age stories, which are extremely exploitative for the most part. And, and you don't, and then you start thinking, it's like, how is this actress treated on set? And what does she think of it after the fact? I read an interview that said that that she 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 felt very comfortable on this set. But I mean, it's just there was all these kind of things tied up within it. Where if you found it after the fact that someone was like involved in this production that that was like, oh, my God, I had such a horrible time. I had to do this rape scene. and I'm 11 years old. Right. I mean, you could imagine that someone would feel that no amount of art would be worth that experience for that person. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I will say that I, I do. I don't know if I will do this, but I do think this movie probably does deserve a second watch. My first experience of it, though, if I'm going to be honest, was. Uh, mostly unpleasant, um, but not entirely so. And I think part of that was the performances, which I wanted to talk about with you sure. a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you feel about some of the performances, not including Carol Kane, of course, because we'll finish that there. Some of the performances in the film, did any particularly stand out to you uh, at all? It's funny that Michael Lonsdale isn't seen. I mean, he, he's an actor that I really enjoy seeing pop sure. up in all yeah. sorts of different things. The idea that it's just his voice for so much of it. And even after the dinner scene where he finally kind of reveals his face, everything that comes after, he's just like the voice on the other side of a door and things like that as well. He kind of goes back into that category. I think it's a really interesting choice. I think he does a good job at playing a complete fucking asshole, right? I mean, I think he's he's really good. I think that Katia Waschenko, who plays the young girl in it, the La Petite Fille, uh, that, I, I mean, she's amazing. Right? I mean, she is being asked to do so much, uh, probably too much. But I mean, she really does um, manage to encompass. You know, what's really impressive is that part where she's melting the wax with the putting the hair in it and making the necklace out of it. And she has to do all that in one take and do it very kind of uh, genuinely leading up to her own suicide attempt. I mean, just some unbelievable stuff on display here. Really, really strong performance. And I do think that the uh, actor playing the swimmer and the thief, I think he does a really good job as well. Very distinctive looking gentleman. But I mean, this, the performance, I have to say, I mean, the performance of the child is the one that really stands out. But the one that you leave thinking about is the Cal Kane performance. I think that's true. Um, I have complicated feelings about the ending of the film, which sure. um, we can get into as part of her performance. But I think she she nails it, and I and I have to agree with what you said. Although I also think the um, and I don't have his name in front of me, but maybe you can find it the the swimmer guy, the greasy swimmer guy. Uh, <laughs> I know, think that uh, he's he's Roberto Plate. He spends a lot of his time just posing, which is not that impressive. But he does have this one scene with her where. He has to be not creepy. It's hard to imagine playing that scene with her, and you know that this girl's obsessed with you, the character is obsessed with you, and your character has to come across as not weirded out by that, but not at all creepy. Like, at no point do we think he's like, yo, what's up, little girl? Because that would ruin it. That would be upsetting. That would upset the whole cart. Sure. But but also, he's not... Um, uncomfortable either. He's just sort of like doing his thing. He's sort of 
I, I don't know. I just there was something about that that I thought really worked. Um, I don't know. I just I appreciated him as well. I I gotta say I felt like um, a lot of the performances were really strong. I guess the only thing that stuck out to be not strong was her brother, which is like he's asked to do some very upsetting things. So yeah. um, you know whatever. But uh, but otherwise, I I, I felt like a, a lot of the performances were were really great. Even the imperious English teacher. Yeah, <laughs> he's chewing the scenery, but I kind of love that. I kind of love reading ass. his Edgar Allan Poe story with his yeah. fly down. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, his wife got pelted with piss. <laughs> yes, she did. Pelted with piss is my second EP release. Um, uh, I, really quick before we move on to Carol Kane, I did also want to ask, like, about the cinematography. Uh, was there was there aspects of it that really stood out to you? Did you think it was really strong, or was it just not something you noticed in this? Movie? No, I noticed absolutely. Actually, one of the things that I did notice about this was that Catherine Benet that she seemed very confident as a filmmaker considering Agreed. that she yeah. this isn't really you know she didn't really make narrative films and this was her you know her first one um and it it it, it didn't feel like the work of someone who wasn't totally comfortable with the camera that I I felt there's some really lengthy shots particularly at the beginning of the film that I think are done really well she gets these great performances but yeah it looks Amazing. Also because France is so photogenic, you know what I mean? Uh, it re- reminded me a little bit, and this is a, a, maybe an unfair comparison, of all the French scenes. I think they're French scenes. The scenes at the beginning of, of uh, William Freakin's Sorcerer that take place with all these kind of hoity-toity people. And the way that it, it feels very lived in and very... Um, it doesn't feel artificial at all. Right, the way that that wealth is shown, I think, in the United States in a lot of films is kind of like this artificiality and kind of um, coldness. But because of all the wood and all the the uh, kind of the antiques around everyone, there's a warmth that surrounds the wealth in this. But it actually makes it kind of feel a little more insidious, where it's just like it's kind of a false warmth because the people are so terrible. Right, <laughs> sure, and I, even his weird room, right? It's, it's absolutely. It's, Beautiful, but also upsetting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> once, once it becomes clear what it is. At first, I was just like, "Not no." It's kind of upsetting right away, right? Because we see him uh, just paying attention to these weird baby angel things, and it's yeah. it's. But it, it gets more upsetting, I guess, is what I mean. Okay, yeah. You know, this is a show. It's not about um, you know girls humping banisters or awkward French movies. This is a show about Carol Kane, and this mm-hmm. was uh, what Carol Kane was doing in 1980, 1981. Um, what did you think of her performance in this film, which is really both front-loaded and back-loaded, uh, let's say, but also forms an important bookend to the movie, you know, like either side of the movie? The question I have for you before I answer that is, is Carol Kane's character in this supposed to be an american who has learned french yes i think that's clear right i wonder how important that is to her reaction at the end of the film and and her character as a whole the fact is she i mean what an amazing thing that she has to do here to speak french exclusively throughout this movie and to be able to communicate in a way that i guess you know if you were a french person that you would recognize right away that french wasn't her first language but still an amazing performance in regard to that but like I was saying before, she has to play very restrained because her husband in this is, is he's kind of, I mean, very much emotionally abusive to her. He treats her like shit. She yeah. is either having an affair or thinking about having an affair um, and is basically vanishes for pretty much the entire 
middle of the movie. I mean, even when it goes back to her story, it's really all about her husband capturing this thief. She she kind of bookends it to a certain extent. And the idea, I think, is, you know, at the beginning, she she seems like pleasant enough. But having the knowledge of everything that takes place between that beginning and the end, you know, the story of her sister, what she wrote, you know, all the autobiographical elements, um, and also what her husband did was enough to bring her to the breaking point. And maybe, you know, who knows if she also has maybe some psychological damage in her own life. But I will say that I wasn't necessarily expecting her reaction at the ending, but it's pretty explosive. Yeah, I think the reason I feel complicated about the ending is this the you know, uh, I, you know, spoiler, spoiler, I guess. She is having this breakdown, she's locked herself in a room, there's a gun, she's clearly contemplating suicide, also contemplating murder. Yeah. And uh and it ends with her shooting the picture of a heart, and I think I was just feeling so aesthetically alienated from this film, Doug. That moment I almost spilled over into slow jerk off motion. Oh, just really? Be- just because <laughs> it was like I had already been tested to a certain point, and that's just such a interpretive decision. Like she shoots the heart, but it's like a picture of a heart. Oh yeah, no, I can you see that. That's a little now, granted, too far. I was being, I think I was being a bit unfair, but but that's because, like I said, and I think this is true of a lot of viewers of film. When a film is testing you and it's pushing you and you're asked to, to come along with it but you are for whatever reason not connecting with it you can be impatient we can all be impatient as viewers and i was feeling a bit impatient and i was really feeling moved by this scene what she was doing that that was connecting with me and i was feeling like okay where are we going and then that artistic very sort of abstract i guess decision felt to me like a little bit snobby or elitist or whatever you know what i mean like i I, some part of me felt like this was a a, like a bad decision to make uh in retrospect i i do think i was being a bit unfair and if i rewatched the movie maybe i'd feel with more but yeah i mean considering how little she's in the movie she's really not a huge presence i was really felt like this is still qualifies as a Carol Kane movie. In fact, I, I think one of the things we had read or talked about was a, a review that suggested that she was barely in it. And I guess that's true, but man, what a way to be barely in a movie, right? Like <laughs> it, it ends with it. Her, She's the most important part of the film at the end, or at least of that moment of the film, she is holding it together. And I just Absolutely. was really impressed by that. You know, I don't know. It, 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 even though I didn't love this movie for those listeners who feel like they're with us because they want to have a complete view of her career, this might be an essential movie for this time period, Doug. I will say that if I was ever to have an opportunity to talk to Carol Kane at this point, I would definitely ask, how did she end up in this movie? It just seems like it seems ridiculous that she, and again, not ridiculous, oh, she, what, what is an actress like Carol Kane doing in this? It's just that, no, you know, no. going from La Sabina to this, it really feels like, whether it was maybe there wasn't a lot of work available in the United States at the time, and she was just looking around the world for, for other opportunities, but, but this is the one that I'm more curious, maybe out of any movie we've covered so far, about her perspective on it. Well, and to consider that this is the same year as The Greatest Man in the World, right? And then another movie. Like, she has three movies come out in 81. Isn't that is that right? Do I have that Yeah, right? I believe so. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so the, none of them seem related. Like, you know, like, not all of her stuff, but some of the things she's done up to this point that we've talked about, they're, you know, they're not of a piece, but you could see how she, maybe she got there. And these... <laughs> 
these are three things that I'm like, what were you doing? How did you end up in these three movies? I just don't don't know, you know? I will say that the common thread might be what you were saying in the first segment about they're all kind of highfalutin to a certain extent, even sure. including yeah. The Greatest Man in the World, yeah. which is a, a literary adaptation. Maybe yeah. it's just that, you know, she... She did sort of, you know, she did the the world's greatest lover and the Muppet movie and things like that, and she wanted to show that that there was a lot more to her than just one kind of actress, and she's certainly showing that in these recent films. Yeah, it's it's intense. So I don't know, I you know, I guess uh, to wrap up here, we're we're of a mixed mind about this movie, but Doug, you almost convinced me that I might be wrong and you might be right, <laughs> and 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 I'm willing to at least remain then agnostic, which I I kind of knew going in that. Um, Though I was feeling pretty negative about this movie when it finished, there was already a part of me that was like, I don't know, uh, maybe I need to watch it again. Which, I'm not saying I will watch it again, but I am saying that um, uh, it, it's possible that our listeners might have a more, uh, more of a similar experience to you, especially if they're familiar with either one of these literary works that the movie is right. borrowing from. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, no, 100%. And I, I, Again, I, in some ways, it's... It's asking a lot of an audience to have that familiarity. But I will say that if you are going to check this out, at the very least, visiting the Wikipedia page of Unica Zurn to uh, you know, read about her life and her background, uh, I think it would really inform your viewing. Sure, yeah. Um, so on our next a- episode, we're going to be covering uh, The Greatest Man in the World, a film from 1981 that I know nothing about and that is apparently related to James Grover Thurber, a cartoonist that I also know nothing about. Doug, what can you tell us about this movie we're about to cover? So it's not really a movie. It's it's an hour-long adaptation of a short story made for PBS uh, on the okay, show, The sure, American sure. Short Story, right? So it, it's like hosted by Henry Fonda, who's like, this is one of the great works of literature. And then you see an adaptation of it afterwards. You probably know the author because he's also the, the author of The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. It's been adapted million times including uh in 2013 with ben stiller um but i mean you know it's it's not a story that i was taught in in my schooling so it's not one i'm familiar with uh and it is a comedy so it should be pretty light certainly very different than what we watched in this episode only an hour long liam i think it'll be bright and and easy and i'm looking forward to checking it out (laughs) i believe it's on youtube i'll uh when we watch the episode proper and, and i'll put it on our um our social media as well a link where people can check it out well, I'm excited for people to check it out and uh, hopefully when they listen, uh, know a little bit about it. And I promise this time before I declare something <laughs> shitty, I'll do at least five minutes of research to see uh, a little bit more about what's going on there. Uh, I'm excited, Doug, as I always am when we do this show, because we're really getting into some of the more interesting aspects of her career that like I had no idea even existed. So uh, hopefully people are excited to take that journey with us. Doug, if they're excited, not just by the journey of this show, <laughs> Praising Kane, but by our whole family of very fun, punnily named shows, uh, where can they find more of that? Well, you can always find the latest episode over at Cinepunks.com, which also has an array of other podcasts devoted to, well, a lot of genre cinema stuff over there. You can check it out at Cinepunks and all on social media under Cinepunks. 
Uh, you can also find all of our Praising Kane episodes as well as our other podcast under the Cinema Smorgasbord name at cinemasmorgasbord.com or on Twitter at cinemasmorg. That's S-M-O-R-G. You can also find us on Facebook under that name as well. We have podcasts devoted to such diverse topics as, of course, Carol Kane, the work of Jackie Chan, Alejandro Jodorowsky, Paul Bartel, Dick Miller, so on and so on. Just a lot of podcasts devoted to very specific themes that you can check out at cinemasmorgasbord.com. If you enjoy this podcast, why don't you leave us a review on your podcast provider of choice. You can also follow Liam on Twitter at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. And I'm there as well at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. We don't talk about it a lot on this show, Doug, but there is a Patreon for the Cinepunks Podcasting Network. And we mm. have just finished, and in fact, we'll, uh, uh, we've just published an episode, our first Patreon episode for Cinema Smorgasbord, uh, where we discuss randomly the Misfits record, Walk Among Us. <laughs> now that you say it out loud, it does seem ridiculous. We have a show called Cinema Smorgasbord. Let us talk about something that I know nothing about, music. No, uh, yeah, we talk about the Misfits. We talk about Danza. We talk specifically track by track through Walk Among Us. If you've ever wanted to hear Liam and I talk about a punk record from the early 80s, this is your opportunity. <laughs> I mean, look, here's the deal. We wanted to try something different. I think it worked. I'm really excited for people to hear sure. it. Um, I would say this. If you're already on the Patreon, check it out. Give us feedback immediately. Let us know what you think. Uh, it's available right now. If you aren't on the Patreon, hey, here's a good opportunity. Jump on there. Drop us. I think you could drop us as low as a dollar. Check it out. If you like it, stick around. Maybe bump it up to five if you're willing to. That'd be sick. Uh, and let <laughs> us know what you think. Maybe we'll do more. Actually, I already know we are definitely doing at least one more, and then we'll decide <laughs> where it goes from there. <laughs> Liam enjoys my ignorance when it comes to this, so really we're, we're going to talk about it all the more. I can't wait to discover that some Oasis song is based on a novel that you don't know shit about and make you look stupid on a recording. <laughs> <laughs> that was not my intention. No, no, I don't feel that way at all, actually. But, okay, well, hey, thanks for listening, everybody. We can't wait to uh, uh, jaw at you again next time. Until then, have a great night. Could kill, they probably will engage without frontier.